You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, sir, the time of the evening where you join us on uh, Wasail Al-Alama Sadiqa Truthful News. And Alhamdulillah, on a Friday evening, it is uh, time for us to be with uh, George Galloway and uh, friends. Uh, let me welcome you all with a hearty Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Many things happening. Yeah, yeah, they've been threatening George Galloway and uh, putting bombs, uh, well, you know, threatening to put bombs in his post box and so forth. And if they don't get him, they'll stab him. And that's so. And uh, he's reported that to the police. Investigation has uh, revealed uh, that they have arrested one man, and another uh, still has to be arrested. So, uh, quite interesting uh, that you know when people speak the truth, and uh, they're being targeted. So, uh, I want you to sit back uh, this evening and enjoy this edition of uh, Truthful News. Against this show. So let me make this plain. Nothing will ever silence the mother of all talk shows. Neither threats nor actuality. You can kill me and you will still not stop the mother of all talk shows because many will rush to pick up the microphone that I drop. We will not be silenced. We will not be intimidated from our duty to bring to the public's attention across the Anglosphere and beyond the alternative point of view to that which is being force-fed to the sheep on the way to the charnel house in the so-called mainstream media. If we don't do it, who will do it? 974 media on the behalf of the political class which is lying its people onto the edge of a precipice over which they might drop and humanity might end. We've gone in just five days to fight Russians. In just five days since we made from panzers to long-range artillery to F-16s to submarines and now the demand of the coup regime in Kiev for the supply of nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons to Ukraine. What could possibly go wrong? Now you might say, well, of course, they'll never get these things. But you once said that about the German panzers. The German government once said it about the German panzers. The last time that German panzers crossed the Ukrainian border to fight Russians, Russian T-34 tanks ended up in the center of Berlin. Two of them are still there, supposedly as a warning to the German people and their politicians of the danger of revanchist revival, of the danger of a revival of German militarism. But that reminder has not worked. Indeed, in the last hour, I've just seen a report that a young man has been sentenced to prison in Germany for speaking out against the German government's role in the war in Ukraine. Won't be long before that kind of thing starts to happen elsewhere, maybe even here. Perhaps we better put this show underground or cease to expose. Now, talking about lies, Mad Vlad threatened to nuke Boris Johnson, according to Boris Johnson on the television in an interview in which he was promoting his new book. He's in Washington at the moment, meeting the great and the good. Well, not so good, but great and powerful, that's for sure. It is a remarkable tour. I'd like to know who's 
paying for it because Boris Johnson doesn't come cheap. The parliament of which he remains a member, though he doesn't seem to do much in the way of parliamentary work, still less in the way of constituency work, so we imagine that he'll be quitting at the next election. Boris Johnson said on television that Vladimir Putin threatened to strike him with a missile, adding it would only take a minute. Now, as it happens, Russia has no missiles but a minute away from Britain. They are six minutes away. And if they did fire a missile at Boris Johnson, it would, of course, kill a very large number of people besides Boris Johnson. So the threat, if real, is a very dark and sinister turn of events. The question is, is it real? Now, I made a movie, you'll see it in just a minute, it's only three minutes long, uh, explaining why I don't believe Boris Johnson. And 23,507 amazed that anybody does. In fact, if I could find out who the people are that believe Boris Johnson, I'd offer to sell them a bridge in London going very cheap indeed. I don't believe Boris Johnson because he lies for a living. He is the proverbial liar. He's been lying all his life. He's lied to his employers. He's lied to his colleagues. He's lied to his wives. He's lied to the husbands of other women. He's lied and lied and lied throughout his professional and political career. There's a very good case for saying he even lied to the late Her Majesty the Queen. And uh, I'm not alone in thinking that. As a liar, I have to take the view that whatever he says will have to be backed up by evidence. Now, in this case, evidence is very easily to hand. It happens to be the case that every conversation on the telephone with a British Prime Minister is meticulously recorded and logged by the civil service in Downing Street and in Whitehall. Therefore, if Boris Johnson is telling the truth about this death threat from, from uh, Vladimir Putin, the evidence is there. Now, I'm not asking for the publication of the whole conversation. There may well be diplomatic, even military reasons for not doing that. But the threat to kill Boris, a very serious matter indeed, is easily extractable from the whole. It can only have taken 15, 30, 45, 60 seconds to utter. And it's important to the British people that we know whether or not this is true. Because if it is true, it is a threat to the British people by the president of the Russian Federation. And that would have serious consequences. Even for me, it would have serious consequences. But if it is a lie, as I strongly suspect that it's a lie, then it would be the apex of a mountain of lies that has been erected here in the United Kingdom. There is no country in the whole world where war fervor is more at fever pitch other than in the United States, and not even in the United States as a country as a whole, but in the beltway amongst the political class. There is no place where war fervor is greater than here in Britain, and that goes back a very long way. British 
establishment hatred of Russia is as old as the hills. We fought them in the Crimean War. Quite an interesting title for that war, isn't it? We fought them in the War of Intervention in 1920 when we landed scores of thousands of British soldiers who hadn't even been allowed to go home at the end of the First World War but were sent instead to fight Russians in Russia. Not a lot of people know that. A hundred thousand British and American troops invaded Russia at Marmanska, Archangel, and in the Caucasus to try and regime change the government in Petrograd and later in Moscow. And they were defeated. There was a brief and glorious period when Russia was our ally in which Winston Churchill repeatedly praised, hailed both Joseph Stalin and the Red Army and the Russian and wider Soviet people for breaking the back, in Churchill's words, of the Nazi war machine. Seven out of eight casualties of the Nazi war machine were Soviet citizens, either soldiers or civilians. And of course, the beast of Berlin was crushed underfoot in the center of Berlin by the Red Army and the military commander General Zhukov with very great prescience said we have crushed the beast underfoot in Berlin our allies will never forgive us how perspicacious was that and then of course we fought the Russians through the long cold war and now we're fighting them again I say fighting we're fighting them with America's army. We threaten them with America's army. Because as I'm tired of saying, and you may be tired of hearing, the entire British armed forces could comfortably fit in to the Aston Villa football ground called Villa Park. And I mean the army, the navy, and the air force. Indeed, the Pentagon this very week downgraded the British military to a second-tier force. How humiliating. I must bring it up at the Oxford Union in a week or two when I debate with the head of the British Army and indeed the British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, whose ancestor was in the charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava in the aforementioned battle uh, at the War of Crimea. You can imagine I'm going to have fun at the Oxford Union. I wonder if a diplomatic illness will strike Ben Wallace somehow in the interim and that he might not be able to make it. So our duty is clear. It is to expose lies. And if we are wrong, we will humbly eat pie. So let me make this promise to you. If Boris Johnson and the British government publish this tape recording, and it does indeed contain a threat to launch a missile within one minute at Boris Johnson and by extension the British people, I will eat this hat live on television for you. That's how confident I am that Boris Johnson remains always a liar. Now, let's hope the terrorist threat that was made to us at 6.30 this morning is resolved by the time I come off air. 
because, you know, my family, my colleagues, the people working on this show have a right to prompt police success and a prosecution to follow. We'll be talking uh, to the great Lee Camp, the most censored comedian uh, in the world today and probably the most censored comedian in the United States ever. And that's because his humour too is always right over the target. And Brian Belichick, a former United States Marine, a military analyst, almost without peer, is our other guest on the show tonight. And host of most censored news, which will be most of the news, actually. And he joins me now from the United States. Lee Camp, welcome, as always, to the mother of all talk shows. Let's start with news so censored, virtually nobody knows it, that the Pentagon again failed its audit. In fact, has never passed an audit. What's that all about? Who's stealing America's money? Yeah, this is a massive story that has gotten almost no coverage over the past couple of months. <laughs> uh, of course, your mainstream media is not going to tell you about this, but our Pentagon, which uses and takes in trillions of dollars uh, you know, the budget is in the 800 billion range. However, that doesn't count various black budget projects, those done in the dark of night. So it's well over a trillion a year. But then on top of that, over 15 years, uh, it, 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 by the Pentagon's own books, we know they had $21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments in their books, financial adjustments. Uh, and And despite all of that, they have never passed an audit. They were legally obligated by Congress to do an audit starting in the 90s, and they never did one until about five years ago. They finally agreed to audit their books. It took over a thousand, I think maybe 2,000 auditors. It took hundreds of millions of dollars after all of that work that they had failed their audit. And then a couple of years go by and they do it again and again and again. And just recently, for the fifth time, they failed their audit. And within that failure, they said they cannot account for over half of their assets. I mean, you couldn't make this up if you were re writing a comic book or something. No, you couldn't. I mean, we're used to being, we used to be in something called the European Union, which never passed its audit either. Uh, but at least yes, that got something me. of a public airing. At least they got an annual embarrassment yes, out of, of it. The evening, um, I'm sure that the top brass of the military are not embarrassable. But you would have thought in a democracy that the politicians overseeing this kind of reckless chicanery would at least be embarrassable, are they? No, and by all the evidence that I can see, Congress doesn't even seem to care. I mean, I have not seen any discussion by Congress about this yet again audit failure. Uh, the defense, you know, secretary or one of his goons came out and did a little press conference where they said we failed our audit, but we made progress. We came to a conclusion quicker. And my response to that is sucking quicker, failing quicker is not a win. That doesn't go down as you actually succeeding. And yet here they are with no shame saying that's the answer after five audits. And I don't think they will ever 
uh, reveal their books, reveal what's actually going on. Like I said, in some of the revelations we've seen, we know that they can't account for over half their assets. And these are literally things like it's everything from weapons to, to tanks to jets to buildings and roads. They, the Pentagon, with 900 whatever military bases around the world, literally doesn't know every building they own. They don't know if people are in the buildings they own. And when the, the uh, you know, investigators go to check these things out, they often find that a building that they thought was being used is not. A building they thought wasn't being used is. Uh, they have no idea what, with any of this stuff, where it is, what's happening. And they, of course, this is the largest mass murder machine in the world. And I don't mean that as some, you know, histrionic term. This is literally the largest machine of organized human murder that exists in the world right now. And they don't even know where the weapons are, where the money's going. Uh, to what extent, then, is America a democracy? If an overweening military, as was warned of by General Eisenhower uh, as late, uh, uh, as long ago as the 1950s, uh, has become so powerful as to be impervious even to the auditors, to what extent is America uh, not on, not, they call themselves the leading democracy, to what extent is it a democracy at all? Uh, whatever's less than zero on that on that level, because not only do you have all of the ways that our election systems are, are, are rigged in one form or another, of course, the biggest one being simple money. But besides that, these people are not elected. These people running the Pentagon everywhere throughout the entire structure of the Pentagon. These are unelected people. And then on top of that, the elected, so-called elected people that we have in Congress and in the White House, they aren't even looking into these books. They don't even seem to care that there's trillions of dollars of so-called missing assets and, and $21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments. I, I mean, they are completely unaccountable to anyone. Not the not the uh, average Americans, not the uh, representatives that supposedly represent us. And the mainstream media, what you know, they're supposedly supposedly supposed to be the ones that that look into this type of thing, that uh, call these politicians and this Pentagon to account for for these horrible, grievous actions. And they, if anything, they generally defend the actions of the Pentagon. The New York Times famously did an article trying to defend the 21 trillion of unaccounted for adjustments, financial adjustments, by saying, "Oh, well, generals aren't very good at keeping the books." As if that explains $21 trillion. It, of course, cannot. It has to be something systemic. They have to intentionally be laundering this money. It is the world's largest laundering machine, money laundering machine, really. It, puts the, it takes the money from the taxpayers, which is really printed by our central banking system. It takes that money and it launders it through the Pentagon and it puts it in the pockets of weapons contractors and politicians and, and, and think tanks. and it's a, it's a money laundering scheme. I mean, I was going to, it's a bit unfair because neither of us is an economist, but how, how can America afford all of this, Lee? Where does all this money come from? The last time I looked, the United States manufacturing base was shrunken, its infrastructure rotting and crumbling. I know that half of the people of the United States are either officially poor or on low incomes, 
70% without proper health care insurance and so on. Where does all this money come from and why is it spent in such a madcap way? Well, that's why I love coming on your show, because you get to the key question. You get to the heart of the issue. Uh, the, the truth is, uh, America doesn't have this money. We go into debt to the tune of, what, what is it, $30 trillion now or something like that. It's, it's largely meaningless. Now, why does our currency not lose power when you're $30 trillion in debt and you're just printing money out of nowhere endlessly? Because of the petrodollar and the dollar being the global reserve currency. So as long as that petroleum's still flowing and the, most nations are using the dollar as reserve currency, we can print as much as we want, which is what the United States does. Yet they still run around with this dog and pony show saying, oh, we need to collect tax dollars in order to be able to afford things. But of course, that's not the real heart of the issue. That's not where the real truth lays. And they, you know, meanwhile, they use that same lie to say we don't have enough money whenever you say Americans should have health care, Americans should have good Social Security, should have better schools, should fix that infrastructure you missed. You mentioned with with uh, 50,000 structurally deficient bridges across the United States. Who knows when another one of those will collapse underneath your car? Whenever people say we need all these things that a functioning positive, good, healthy society should have. Our lawmakers do their job, do their job in this Shakespearean tragedy by running around and saying, we don't have the money for that. But when it comes to dropping bombs, when it comes to weapon contractors, when it comes to funding proxy wars in Ukraine, we have all the money in the world. It's always there. And uh, your friend of mine, Jimmy Dore, was on the show on, uh, on Sunday. Uh, and he, he drew the analogy uh, of uh, the U.S. political system, uh, the, the Republican-Democrat uh, dog-and-pony show, uh, he drew the analogy of the Harlem Globetrotters. In other words, it's not really basketball, it's just a show. Uh, that didn't translate all that well uh, to a U.K. audience. Uh, so I was thinking about how to do so, and it, it struck me, it's like professional wrestling. Uh, the two wrestlers pretend to fight each other and the audience pretend that they're watching a real fight when everybody concerned knows that it's an entirely choreographed farce. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. And when I used to watch it as a kid, I don't know if they still do this, they used to always have the big names, the Hulk Hogan's and the Macho Man Randy Savages against some guy you'd never heard of. And you kind of knew who was going to win, who was going to lose. Because you knew it was Corey Graham, and you knew the guy you'd never heard of wasn't going to beat Hulk Hogan. And that's, you know, that's what it is with the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats go, oh, we want to help people. We should do something for health care. We should, etc. And the Republicans go, no, no, no. And what do you know? The Democrats just can never get those things to happen. They can never really get a, a minimum wage, good minimum wage for people. They can just never make these changes. But they do. They go through the show anyway. They go through the theatrics anyway. Although there has been one change over the past, you know, 20 years in that neither party seems to stand up against war at all. There's essentially zero debate against war. Maybe there's a couple of Republicans that are against the proxy war in Ukraine, but there's really no anti-war party even to pretend that they are against it. It, do it doesn't exist. 
Now, the President of the Republic had his house in Delaware raided today by the FBI, uh, as the previous President of the Republic had his house raided by the FBI in Florida a couple of months ago. What on earth is going on, Lee? Well, there's a couple of things going on. One thing is, I mean, is anyone surprised Joe Biden doesn't know which papers are where? I mean, I don't think he knows which room he's in, uh, you know, and Trump's brain isn't much better. But beyond that, as former CIA man John Kerryaku said, this speaks to the insane classification that goes on with American government now. Every paper that ever passes through the White House in any regard is classified because, the, how, you know, God forbid they ever show the American people what is actually happening in the White House. So you have meaningless pieces of paper being classified endlessly. So that's part of it. But then the other thing I think is, you know, the, the, the ongoing thing with Trump, and I'm no fan of Trump, I'm no fan of Biden, uh, is that the it's a rift in the ruling elite, the ruling class, many of them, probably, you know, 70, 80 percent did not think Trump was a good CEO for America, Inc. And they want him out of the way. They think he'd likely win a reelection if he's allowed to run, you know, quote unquote, fairly in our rigged system. And so they needed a way to stop him. Now, and they thought they had it with this classified papers thing. But it turns out that Biden and Pence and probably every president has had classified papers stuck to their shoe all over the place. Now, I read a story today, uh, please tell me this can't be true, that uh, in place of Joe Biden, and you'd have to be a real optimist to believe that he can run again in two years' time, uh, the Democrats are grooming Michelle Obama to run for, as it were, a third Obama White House. Is that true? <laughs> I haven't read that one, but... Who, who knows? I remember uh, a few years ago they were saying it was going to be Oprah was going to going to take over. But, you know, I think what this speaks to is that it's it's a borderline meaningless position. Uh, that doesn't mean there, there some things don't change. I mean, some things do change, but it, it largely the machinery of the system in America continues exactly apace. It doesn't really change. The military industrial complex continues. Big pharma continues. Big oil continues. Big ag continues. None of it changes that severely. There are some trimmings here and there that get adjusted. But for the most part, the, the, the two corporate teams that are on the same team 90% of the time just want to put someone up that represents a, 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 the idea that Americans actually had a choice. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's laughable and good for you as, uh, as a comedian, uh, the, this, uh, this dog and pony show, as you put it. But for those of us in the rest of the world, it, it, it's less than laughable or more than laughable in the sense that uh, your government is effectively dictating to all the other governments of what they call the West. Now, the West is only 13% of the population of the world, but it happens to be the place where we have to live. Uh, and European governments have now self-lacerated their own economies. They've self-harmed their own economies and their own people on the orders of a guy who, as you put it, doesn't know which room he's in, what day it is. 
you see our, our, our quandary here, Leif. Yeah, and I, I think that it's because of the big picture. The big picture is the U.S. is losing uh, global hegemony. There's a great split in the world's economy ha happening right now, economies with China and Russia on one side and the U.S. and Europe on the other. And the U.S. Was, is using this proxy war for multiple things, but one of them is to force much of Europe back into a kind of vassal state system. And, you know, especially with, with Germany and France, they were kind of forced into this. You can either cooperate with Russia or you can cooperate with the United States. They're self-harming and the UK along with them to in order to stay in the, the good graces of uh, a bloodthirsty uh, hegemony. Wow. Well, uh, the Oscars are coming up, Lee. Uh, have you got any insight into them uh, for us? Uh, is Zelensky going to show up? I, I, I do have some insight into the Oscars, and we did not discuss this before I got on here, but uh, I certainly hope Zelensky does not show up, but he could win a Best Acting Award. I think that would be, that would be uh, well-deserved. Uh, you know, being the, being the head of... Being a Jew like myself and the head of a, a fairly neo-Nazi army is quite an acting uh, achievement. But I also will make a call in the uh, in the genre, uh, the the area of uh, best animated film. I think it will go to my brother's movie, Marcel the Shell with Shoes. My brother. I'm getting on that right away. If the bookmakers are still open, Lee Camp, thank you for joining us on the mother of all. Thank you, Daniela. We'd be uh, honored to have you. Speaking of schools, uh, the teachers were on strike in Britain today. And I want to say this because I see a lot of prejudice around. If you don't think that Britain's teachers deserve better pay, then you obviously don't have children or you have forgotten what it is like to have children. You hand over your most precious thing, your children, to a perfect stranger who nurtures them and educates them every five, five days a week for 15 years, nearly, and who educate them, protect them, keep them safe, nurture them, and all for less than you would pay for commercial childcare. Get real. Our teachers deserve more pay and more respect. Now, to kill him. In fact, threatened to kill all of us because he was going to kill him with a missile and that would have hit a lot of people, even though Boris is a rather big target. Now, this is on the front page of every British newspaper. It's in every British news bulletin. I've no doubt that, like the proverbial lie, it's already halfway around the world and you see my problem is I simply can't believe Boris Johnson. I don't believe him any more than his previous employers have believed him. His previous wives have believed him. Other people's husbands have believed him. I don't believe him any more than the Conservative MPs believed him when they sacked him or the Parliament believed him or I'm sure the late Her Majesty the Queen ever believed him. He lies for a living. Otherwise, he would have told us this remarkable story before appearing in a paid-for television interview in order to break this news. However, 
there is a way for Boris Johnson to prove me wrong. Boris was Prime Minister at the time of the threat, so I happen to know that every call made by the Prime Minister is recorded by the civil service in Whitehall. Now, I'm not asking for the whole tape. I'm not asking for the whole conversation. No doubt there was talk about the Ukraine. Go ahead, Andrew. Hi, right, George. I just want to say first off the top of me at yeah. Thanks for all the amazing help you've done for the Palestinian people all down the years from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for that. Thank you, Andrew. It's my duty. Wajib. Right, about Go ahead. George, I've seen lots of videos on Telegram, right, where they've been bundling these teenage boys into the car. And when they protested, they've been being beaten and the parents were hysterical at being dragged off. And just one more thing, George, yeah? I've seen the video of the 79-year-old woman in Solidar and the, the two people, the two soldiers from the Kraken had shot her in the leg and she was hiding in a bombed-out house. And when the mercenaries from Wagner got to her, they were saying, no, no, there's a lady in there. And the incredible compassion, George, that these Wagner and these Russian soldiers showed to the elderly all up and down the line, they call them Grandpa, Grandma. It's just amazing, George. That's all I wanted to say. And do you think, George, if the British public... Well, thank was yeah. shown this. Do you think that that they would turn on the government or not, George? If they actually saw this, what I saw? Well, that, that's well. They're not taking. Yeah, they're not taking any chances on that, Andrew. Uh, this is the least photographed war in history. Uh, at a time when technology would allow us to see every battle in real time, uh, we are not. We're reduced to watching videos on Telegram. Uh, we have, I presume, many, many correspondents, film crews and the rest, but there is no footage of the war on television. And that is precisely for the reason that you have inferred, that if the people knew the reality of the war, the reality of the people that are most in the front line of the Ukraine fighting forces, uh, they would call for a halt to all of this. Young boys, teenagers like the ones you mentioned, old men in their 60s being forcibly bundled into cars, press ganged and sent to the front line with the rear de de detachments of Azov and Kraken, hardcore fascists, shooting them if they turn to flee, if they seek to desert or lay down their arms. This is one of the ugliest wars in history and the Ukrainian people are paying such a high price for the perfidy of their leaders and the even worse perfidy of the Western leaders who are choreographing the whole thing. David is in Portland on neoliberalism. Can't wait. Go ahead, David. Hi. Hi, George. How's it going? All good. Nice of you to call. What would you like to say? I wanted to say sorry for a caller I heard last week named Kim. Um, I moved here from... Yeah, it was from uh, from your town, yeah? Yeah, I, I moved here in 2015 from a town in Florida. Uh, a lot of the reasons why I moved here was because of how progressive I thought it was. How, uh, you know, I always saw yeah. them protesting and standing up for rights that didn't happen in Florida at all or it did on a much smaller scale. I came up here, um, I, it, it seemed great during Trump's presidency how everybody was willing to hold the government accountable, 
during the Black Lives Matter protests. There were, we were out there for 160 nights out of that, that summer of uh, BLM protests. And these trans people, uh, it sounded like Kim was a trans woman that called, uh, they were at the front line. They were the most active. They were, they were out there gung-ho, ready for any kind of progressive reform. But once Trump was no longer in office, they took up the flag of Joe Biden. I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I didn't want any establishment blood on my hands. And I told some of my friends that, and I got called crazy things. I, I, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I got called a communist. And out here in Portland, it's just so it, the neoliberalism is so strong that no matter what the Democratic Party says, no matter their support for Ukraine, uh, they will go at any length to insult people. Um, and I, I thought this was a mecca for progressivism, but it's obviously not now that we have a blue president and they're not holding him accountable yeah. for things like that. I, I don't know. I don't know where you can. Uh, I don't know where you can move to next, uh, David, because uh, the last time I was in Portland, it was exactly like you described. Uh, as in the early days, during the Trump days, but it just goes to show that if you scratch a liberal, you'll find a reactionary underneath. And that's true on your side of the Atlantic. It's true on this side uh, of the Atlantic. I'm guessing that it's true all over the world. When it comes to pussy hats and liberalism, they're also right on. But when it comes to matters of war and peace, when it comes to matters of the railway workers being uh, broken uh, under a blue-collar Democratic president, as Joe Biden laughably always described himself. I used to hear him say he was pro-labor. He's so pro-labor, he broke the railway workers in America on a wheel. Uh, when it comes to the things that really, really matter, I'm afraid the liberals are found wanting. Thank you, David, uh, for that. And for the good people in Portland, Oregon, I take my hat off uh, to you. A few more super chats now. Geopolitical analyst, founder of the New Atlas, and a guest very much in demand online, joins us now. Brian, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, just for the benefit of those not as well versed in in the military situation as you. And it's very difficult to be so because virtually nothing that is true is featured in the mainstream media about the military situation. It's all propaganda and hogwash. Uh, sketch for us the situation. I have a sense that in the last few days, maybe one week, Russia has begun to advance big time across a very large piece of the front. Am I right? Uh, yes, Russia has been making advances. Um, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It is quite an honor uh, to continue giving an overview of the situation. Um, Russia has been, from the very beginning, doing this very incrementally, very carefully, very patiently. They're trying to conserve their fighting capacity, the, the lives of their men and their equipment. And they are moving forward incrementally, bit by bit. And this is depicted by the Western media as incompetence or as failure. Uh, and this is all because the Western media wants to perpetuate this 
proxy war for as long as possible and for as long as profitable. Now, uh, they told us in the beginning that the defense of Bakhmut was a strategic imperative. Then when it looked ready to fall, they said it was strategically uh, meaningless. Uh, now that it is surrounded uh, virtually on all sides, what is it? Meaningless or strategically vital? It's interesting because now they're using the, the encirclement of Bakhmut as uh, uh, impetus to call for all sorts of new armed shipments, tanks. Uh, we're even hearing calls for missiles and warplanes. Um, and in reality, Bakhmut, along with Seversk, Solidar, and Diefka outside of Donetsk City, this is one of the last main defense lines of the Ukrainian military in the east. If Bakhmut falls, if Russia takes the city, there's a huge hole in their defensive network that is going to be difficult for them to plug, and it's also going to expose the, the now uh, flanks to the north and, and the south of this uh, Ukrainian defensive line. So what's the end game that you can see for the Russians, Brian? Uh, at first I thought that they were going to seek uh, to consolidate along the, the Dnipro uh, River, uh, hold the east, uh, Donetsk, Lugansk. But now I think, actually, that doesn't solve Russia's problems. At the very least, they have to take the entire coastline uh, and leave western Ukraine landlocked. Some say that they will have to take the whole country. Stoltenberg said so today on behalf of NATO. Uh, what's your take as a, as a military man of great experience? I think that Russia is eventually, their, their, their goal right now is to demilitarize, to secure the Donbas region. Uh, as they do that, though, as they demilitarize Ukraine in, in the Donbas region, if the Ukrainian military is destroyed, how are they going to uh, defend territory anywhere else in Ukraine? So uh, a lot of people are talking about Russia having to fight their way to Odessa to, uh, to leave what's left of Ukraine landlocked. Um, they might not have to do that. If the Ukrainian military's fighting capacity collapses, if the government in Kiev collapses uh, between military defeat, the infrastructure being whittled away, um, they might not have to fight their way to Odessa, they just kind of uh, fall. I find it very difficult to imagine this war ending without Odessa being once again a Russian city. Can you? I, I, I have speculated from the very beginning that eventually they will want Odessa one way or another. Now, the Russian government has never said anything to that effect, although there have been some hints toward it. Uh, but I, I, I agree. I think the end game here has to be a Ukraine that no longer poses a threat uh, to Russian-speaking Ukrainians inside what's left of the country and uh, to Russia or any, any other of its neighbors. What would happen classically here, Brian, and uh, if I'd had time to research it, I'd have given you an example, but I know that it's the case. What would happen classically here is that the government in Kiev would fall, the military would take over, 
as the people responsible as the people responsible for the remaining soldiers and their lives and welfare answerable for the remaining soldiers and their lives and welfare and would seek to negotiate uh, a settlement uh, with would seek to the Ukrainian military is uh, from from top to bottom it is infested with extremists uh, at, at the very top the general staff and many of the the extremists that have been peppered into the the ground forces uh, as you, you mentioned earlier in the program uh, uh, to to punish Ukrainian soldiers for withdrawing. The idea of the military being more rational than the government in Kiev, I, I, I just find that very hard to imagine. And at the end of the day, both the military and the government in Ukraine, they, they're merely proxies of Washington. I think eventually this is going to have to come down to putting Washington in a place where it has no choice but but to negotiate an end to this that is uh, unfavorable terms for Russia. I don't believe we're going to make any difference. NATO has sent hundreds, hundreds of Soviet-era tanks to Ukraine, tanks they were familiar with, that they could maintain themselves, that they had ammunition for, and Russia destroyed all of those. Now the, the idea is to send Western-made battle tanks that Ukraine has no experience operating, or sustaining on the battlefield, they're going to have to be trained from scratch, even if they were tankers uh, previously. This is still going to take months, if not years, to set this up. Uh, uh, when a nation decides to use a new type of weapon system, like a tank or an aircraft or a new missile system, it takes years to integrate it into their way of fighting. It's not something you can do overnight. I, I saw Poland talking about reducing the training down to five weeks. This is uh, ridiculous. It's also irresponsible because they're going to be sending these crews to the depths. Uh, are likely to make much uh, of a difference. We'll ask how good a tank this Leopard is anyway. And of course, we'll have to ask about the American Abrams tank. I do hope we haven't gone off the air. I'm going to behave as if we're still on the air. Uh, Putin denies the Boris death threat. Who do you believe? Well, 26,756 people have voted, and it's well, rudely interrupted. Uh, you, I was asking you uh, how effective you think, just to give one example, the two Leopard tanks being donated by Canada might be on the battlefield, or the others coming from Germany and elsewhere are likely to be. What's your take on that? Uh, so, so as I was saying, uh, NATO has already sent hundreds of Soviet-era tanks to Ukraine. Ukraine started uh, the special military operation out with around a thousand uh, tanks. Uh, the ones that NATO had previously sent were tanks that Ukrainian crews would have been familiar with, their technicians able to maintain on the battlefield. These new Western main battle tanks that they're going to be sending to Ukraine, uh, you have to train the crews, the technicians from scratch if anything breaks down on them. They have to be sent back to Poland to be repaired. That's a thousand kilometer trip one way from the front line and then another thousand kilometers back to the front line. Uh, these tanks have been used in conflicts recently. We've seen how they fare against even older Russian made anti tank weapons. They fare very poorly, and they're going to fare even worse against uh, the armed forces of the Ru Russian Federation. 
Uh, so they're not going to make a difference. It's going to drag this out longer. It's going to get, unfortunately, more people on both sides killed. Uh, but it's not going to change the outcome. Now, I made the point earlier that uh, it has ruled out uh, the supply of F-16s uh, currently demanded. Germany has ruled out giving one of their seven submarines from their navy. And uh, so far, nobody is giving this long-range artillery. Uh, but as we found before, that which is refused at one point isn't necessarily ruled out forever. Do you expect this upping of the ante to continue? I do. I think they're going to send these attackums that they've been asking for. Uh, before that, they're going to be sending a slightly longer range uh, rocket than the, the ones the HIMARS are firing right now. I believe they're going to start making preparations to send aircraft because they're, they have no better alternative. The only alternative that they have is to either negotiate an end to this on Russia's terms, uh, leave Ukrainians out on the battlefield with just small arms, uh, they, they can't do either one of those at the moment. The, the problem that the U.S. and NATO have is they're not capable of winning this conflict. And they're not psychologically capable of losing it either. And so they want to draw it out for as long as possible. And that's what this, this whole process involves. And uh, incidentally, and going back to some of the things uh, uh, Lee Camp was saying, they will be making huge sums of money doing this. Backfill orders. Uh, these M1 Abrams the U.S. is talking about sending to Ukraine, these are going to be built specifically for Ukraine. That's why it'll take over a year to get them there. Uh, so they're, they're going to make a huge profit, win or lose. Now, uh, the, the situation with uh, weaponry, of course, is, is one thing. But an army marches uh, first on the economic uh, strength of the country whose army it is. Now, uh, Ukraine now effectively has no economy at all. So what about the economies of the countries that are fueling the war? They are all uh, in recession or about to go into recession. The German economy today in recession. The British economy in recession. The uh, other European economies in a powerless uh, state. And the other thing it marches on is the morale of the society back home. Now, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, the reason why this war cannot be honestly debated in the Western mainstream media is that there is no popular support in Western countries. It shrunk. It existed last summer, wave of sentimental waving of flags and so on, but it has rapidly uh, shrunk and, and collapsed, actually, as the economic situation, the energy bills, and so on, have come home to roost. So we have Western countries whose public have to be denied truthful information in order to quell any potential revolt against what we're doing. The economies of the countries doing the fueling uh, in a parlous state uh, that doesn't all add up to a war-winning formula to me, does it, to you? I, I think, unfortunately, the West will find the money to keep pumping into Ukraine. Now, as, as you're alluding to, it's going to make 
Europe suffer first and foremost. Uh, the, the United States to a lesser degree, but they, they have problems accumulating over many years of fighting endless wars to begin with. I, I think the real problem is going to lie with the arms industry. Despite all of the money they make, they, they try to maximize their profits. And to do that, they have cut corners where having your production always ready for a conflict like this uh, does not exist. That capability does not exist, and it's not something you can turn on overnight. It's going to take them years to, to regain this capability, and Ukraine doesn't have years. So I think that is going to hit before anything else. Uh, the, the money pouring into Ukraine instead of in, into infrastructure and programs back across the West, that, that's going to hurt the public. But as you say, as your, your poll that, that you're conducting is suffering this attack by people who are obsessed with manipulating public perception. And that's what most of this is all about, manipulating public perception, as if convincing everyone that you're winning is the same as actually winning. And, and I think they're going to learn the hard way that it's not the same. I, I, yes, I, I firmly believe that. I, I'm a bit surprised that, uh, perhaps I'm being snobbish, uh, that the British civil service dirties its hands uh, with this kind of thing, but perhaps I'm thinking of a civil service that no longer exists. But when I see the filth, the obscenity, the misogyny, the sexism, the homophobia, uh, obsession with with the male appendages and what comes out of them and so on, of the NATO support base, uh, it, it shocks me that that's the best army of trolls that Western countries are able to field. I, I would have thought if, if they could have fielded a couple of hundred Brian Berlitics making a better fist of what they're trying to do, they would have, uh, would have more success. Are you shocked at how low-rent, low-grade uh, the NATO propaganda on the ground actually is? I, I really am not, and it's, it's a problem that goes all the way to the top. We see policymakers in the West, uh, the, the idea that they thought that they could do this, the idea that they could just send weapons, not realizing that their industrial base is not capable of it. This is, this is incompetence, delusion, and also... Um, just a, a complete lack of humanity to, to start a war like this in the first place, a proxy war like this in the first place. And then as it filters down to, to, the, to the people, say, on Twitter, trolling people, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all that they, they are so lowbrow and their tactics are so uh, infantile, really. I mean, there's no other way to, to put it. No, that's right. They're like teenage, uh, vulgar teenage boys in their mother's attic, sitting in their vest and pants, uh, pounding away on the, on, on the keyboard. Uh, but uh, I, I am, I must say, surprised at it. But what you raised there, Brian, is what I call the $64,000 question, which uh, used to be called that when 64000 was a lot more dollars or worth a lot more than it is today. Uh, are our leaders fools or knaves? You see, if I was going to start a war when my military-industrial uh, complex could not actually service that war, did not have the wherewithal to 
Yes, I will leave it at that. And uh, to all of you for staying uh, tuned uh, to Wasail Al-Alam Sadika. I'd like to thank uh, Lucalo for great engineering. And I want you to keep it locked on uh, to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming. And inshallah, also a lovely nasheed interspersed from the team and I till we meet you again. We bid you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.